The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemertas, your financial modelling partner. We're trusted modelling advisors to global leaders ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of the Forward Thinking CFO Podcast. My name is Stephen Aldridge, Managing Director at Numeritas and one of your hosts for this series. In today's episode, I speak to Duncan Haywood, CFO at Pacific Life Re. Duncan's impressive career is testament to the importance of spotting opportunities when they arise. As he points out in this episode, he has only had five job interviews in his entire life. And while in almost every case he's been offered the role, it's not always been the one he initially went in for. With such a successful career, Duncan has many great insights for anyone aiming to become a CFO. In this episode, we discuss a whole range of them, including how he overcame a turbulent start at Pacific Life Re and how that shaped the next 12 years of his career, the significant changes he's seen in insurance over the past 12 months and how he sees the market changing as we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic and how becoming a CFO can often mean you're spending less time looking at finances and more at how the back office is functioning in a business. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to Duncan and finding out more about the challenges he's faced throughout his career. Whether you're just at the start of your finance career or you're a fellow CFO navigating COVID-19, today's episode will give you a great insight into the changing landscape of finance in the insurance market. So with all that said, please sit back and enjoy today's episode of the Forward Thinking CFO with Duncan Haywood. Okay, uh, welcome Duncan to the podcast. It's great to have you along. Thanks for uh, agreeing to be on. Thank you very much, Stephen. Looking forward to uh, answering your questions. <laughs> good, good. So as you know, this is the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. So to get started, could you give us a little bit of background to your you know, to how you got to be the forward-thinking CFO you are and, you know, some of the key milestones or, or turning points along the way. Gladly. So it kind of all starts for me when I was in university um, completing my geography degree. That was around 1986. And uh, not knowing really what I wanted to, to do in life. And um, at that stage, I'd never had any interviews. So I thought, well, What's the uh, likelihood of some people wanting to employ me? And one or two people, like the, the lawyers and the accountants, came down to the university to to interview. And I thought, well, I'll have a go, some some interview practice. And uh, one of the uh, parties that came was PwC, and they offered me an interview. So I went along not really knowing much about it, and um, it went kind of okay. Um, and then they invited me to London to have another interview, and as a result of that, they in fact offered me a job. And, but at the point where I'd been offered a job, I thought, well, I'd better look at this a bit more seriously. So I figured that it would be a good move to go to PwC and spend a three-year training contract trying to get an accounting qualification with 
the intention of then sitting back and thinking about really what I wanted to do in life, but having the background of an accounting qualification. But I kind of never went anywhere else. Uh, I could have gone to the music industry or somewhere like that, which would, in retrospect, I would have loved to have done and been an accountant perhaps, but I, I never did. So um, it was PwC that really started me off. And um, I, I was there for many, many years, uh, included some time abroad as well towards the end of that period in, in, in Singapore and, and vastly enjoyed the experience. But at the end of the day, I kind of figured that I didn't always want to be an auditor, which was essentially what I was doing. So at, at the point of returning from Singapore in 1997, I was starting to think about looking for an opportunity in the industry, effectively trying to become a CFO somewhere. Uh, but clearly at that stage, it was early in my career and I couldn't have automatically got that. So I did find a company that would interview me and, and uh, that company was Royal Sun Alliance and they were at the time merging the Royal and Sun and they had a position in their financial consolidation centre in, in London and I got offered an interview to effectively be you know, two down from the finance director, no three down from the finance director at that point but interestingly I got to the interview and the guy that interviewed said well actually he basically said, well, I don't like that guy who you're going to report to. And if, you, if you're any good, you have a chance to get his job. So um, that made it even more attractive to me. And so I went in there under the, um, uh, under the then CFO and listed company in the UK, complex because of the merger, new finance reporting function, had to bring the basic stuff together for the first time, got a great deal of really good experience there. And, you know, along the path, I was there for about six years in the end. Um, they went for an SEC registration. So New York Stock Exchange, US Gap, got a lot of experience, also a lot of infrastructural tooling in, in the finance area. And everything was great. But towards the latter end of that, they, they made a poor acquisition um, in the US and the Rolson Alliance started to perform not as well as it had been. And I kind of figured that the writing might be on the wall for the management and then started to have a look a bit wider as to what, where I might go. And I, I did some immaculate timing ultimately because my boss actually lost his job and the CEO changed. And I had by that time had another interview with a company called Swiss Re, quite famous PNC and life reinsurer. And I'd always seen this company as a company I wanted to join. I knew one or two people in Swiss Re. And I went along for an interview in London for a specific role in London. And in the midst of the interview, the, the finance head of the life business said to me, well, actually, I think I've got a job that's more suited to you. However, it's in Zurich. Would you be prepared to do that or have a look at it? So I flew over there um, to take a look. I'd always fancied working in Central Europe because I'd had the Asia experience for a few years in PwC and I thought, well, Central Europe wouldn't be a bad place to go. So I talked about it with a few people and then ultimately decided to go forth. Well, it started in 2003. Um, I left there in 2006. So it was a three-year stint in Zurich with Swiss Re. Again, a lot of stuff around building a finance function. Uh, the business was the international life business split across Latin America, European and Asian markets. So it was a good opportunity to travel a bit and see some other 
parts of the world. It perhaps had my favourite ever team event in the midst of it. As part of the project, That what it was, we moved our operations processing out of Zurich and Singapore to Bangalore in India. Um, I was very much leading that project. Uh, it was an outsource, building a new function there that hadn't existed, hiring people. And we had our best ever team event, which was to go out into the national park or a national park and spend a few days looking at the team, deciding how we were going to build our team, getting some spirit going because it was a new venture. And uh, yeah, we saw we saw some animals and some some crocodiles and elephants, etc. And we, you know, not not the kind of average team event uh, that I've been used to elsewhere, but all of it was a great experience. And um yeah, really enjoyed living in, in Europe and, and Switzerland and a lot of other things good about Switzerland, such as the skiing, etc. So um, around about 2006, at the end of that stint, um, as Swiss Re was or has always been prone to doing, is, is having a look at their structure. And they, they, they changed their structure a bit. And I felt a bit dislocated by that. Um, but in the meantime, I'd struck up a friendship with a guy that also was in Zurich, who had moved back to the UK in uh, around 2005. He he was, at that point, a deputy CEO of the Scottish Re Life Insurance, International Life Insurance business. So this was a business headquartered out of Bermuda, uh, having a big US business, but a smallish international business. He rang me up and said, well, you know, I need a CFO. Would you be interested in working for me? Uh, in 2006, it was a very fledgling operation. He he had he was on a promise to become the CEO of the international life business. He wasn't at that point. It looked like a good opportunity. I could see that he might go places, and therefore I took a bit of a risk uh, in jumping because there was no certainty around what PLRE would become. But you know, at the point they had less than 100 million dollars, I think, of premium, probably about 100 employees. And now today, after 14 years, we have a business that's roughly two billion worth of premium. It has over 800 employees across the world, and uh, in a good year, we can produce 100 million profit. Um, but uh, that's we, uh, some impressive growth. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, but of course, this year is not, unfortunately, the year for profit, really. But you know, because of the special events of this year. Well, indeed. Yeah. So, so what has all this taught me? For sure, it's taught me to pick those people very wisely you work with. And I've worked with some great leaders. I've learned a lot from them across the way. And I think that's very much kept my career on track. I think um, the other thing I would say is you never know what's going to quite come in an interview. I've only ever had, I think, five interviews and I've got four jobs. But on virtually every single interview, something's happened in the interview that surprised me and I wasn't expecting a couple of occasions where I was kind of offered the job above the one I was interviewing for and and that sort of thing. And another one where I was told, well, this job's not available here, but the other one is over there. So, um, so yeah, golden rule, be prepared for interviews, but you're not necessarily sure what you're going to get in an interview. Um, but I certainly um, that's helped me along the way, some of those. Yeah. So actually, you effectively spent an entire career in insurance, almost on the basis of an interview that 
you didn't really <laughs> didn't really know what you were going for because uh, I think your first audit job you, you told me earlier was in insurance and and that's kind of what effectively got you into that industry. Yes, it's um, kind of a bit boring, really, because it's true. <laughs> you know, I did when I got to PwC that the, the the, virtually the first assignment they sent me off on was to go and audit um, a company called Signa in, in Maidstone. And as a very junior auditor, I started to learn about insurance. And, you know, I didn't even reset that thinking after the three-year training contract when I got my qualification. So, yeah, it is a career of what could have been, but I don't really know because I was stuck in insurance. I mean, I have done a bit of P&C insurance and I've done probably more now life insurance and I've worked in you know direct insurance companies and I've worked in reinsurance companies. So there is a little bit of variety in there as to what my role has been. But yeah, that's too late now, I guess, to go back to the music industry. <laughs> well, there's always a second career. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah, as you say, there's various different elements to the insurance industry. And, um, and I think it's probably something that we're, people are, are used to dealing with as a consumer you know we all have to insure our cars our houses and maybe our lives oh and that advert says our phones as well doesn't it but uh, i'm not sure everybody really understands what goes on inside the insurance industry i mean I wonder if you could give us a little bit of anything that you know that, that might be interesting there and, and for anybody that's thinking of going into that sort of sector for a career yeah well you know i could we could probably talk about that for five hours, given the variety of insurance that is available to the consumer. I, I mean, I'll, I'll probably say, first of all, you know, I, I don't know all sectors, but but I guess the ones that I've specialised in have been the PNC and, and life sectors and various different products. So what, what's, uh, what's the PNC sector? So the PNC is, is general property and casualty. So, you know, if, you, if you're insuring your car, that would be under property and casualty or your property um whereas my my specialism in the last i guess it's now 20 years has been the life insurance side of the house in the life insurance sector you're essentially selling products that ensure people are at death so essentially providing those that dependents with money at the point of death of an individual um also you know health products critical illness products and then also pension-related products. So we, we at Pacific Life Re as a company have kind of both sides of the house in that we insure people at the time of death, but we also insure pension schemes such that we pay the pensions um, depending on how long an individual lives. And so we de-risk pension schemes, essentially. Um, so that's broadly what the life insurance sector is about, about that. I mean, what is different about working in the insurance sector and particularly life insurance? I guess the first thing I would say is you, you're quite beholden to actuaries. But as a finance person, you know, you, you don't have necessarily the background. I mean, I've only ever met, I think, a few handful of accountants that also got actuarial qualifications. But if you are a finance person and want to go, you know, towards CFO, you really need to understand what the actuaries are up to, particularly in a life insurance company. So, you know, how do you go about that? You, you essentially have to understand what the levers are that they may pull to either, you know, change your result, improve it, worsen it, and understand 
how they go about making those decisions. And clearly, actuaries are are very clever in terms of their ability to model things. So essentially, at the end of the day, it's the interaction between data that we receive as a business and models that they run ultimately determine how you price the business and how you record the business and what your financial results are. So you're very beholden to actuaries and you need to get to understand how they make their decisions. But I can guarantee one thing, and I'm an accountant, of course, you don't necessarily need to have the qualification to be able to be an accountant in in a, a life insurance company. But you do need a fair degree of inquisition and inquiry because otherwise you can't do your job. The other thing is um, the finance people have a lot, a big part to play. Quite often in these companies, the actual results are very dependent on the data the company receives. And quite typically, you find that the finance officer will have a role in helping support the capture of data. Uh, and in in our world, the data is coming from the insurance companies because we are a reinsurance company. So data is all about, you know, age and conditions of individuals and effectively use that data to derive a view on when that individual might die because ultimately most of our product lines are insuring against death and our longevity product, which is insuring pension schemes, is also trying to estimate when a group of people are going to die and then we're pricing that product such that we make a margin and ultimately a return on our capital for the capital that's invested. The other thing I would say about the whole industry is that because of the actuarial side of the things, that ultimately there's a lot of approximations and valuation judgments as to what the liabilities of the company are at any any point. So there's really, you're going to live as an accountant in, the, in a world of that never everything is right or it's wrong. It's just a judgment. So I think if you worked in other industries, you know, it's much more easier to tell whether you've got the right answer. There's technical guidance, but it doesn't involve quite so much judgment. So hence, again, why you need to understand what the levers are that the actuaries can use to either improve the position or worsen it. So those are key key things. The other thing I would say is that there are many ways of looking at a result of a insurance company, and particularly a life insurance company, there are many bases for measuring. You know, typically, and, and we have a US parent, US GAAP will be applied. You can have IFRS reporting and in the future IFRS 17. You can look at your economic basis of reporting, which is your best estimate basis of what you think the results will be. And also regulators employ statutory methods, which is their own basis. So you do need to become quite adept at working through all the different bases that you can report under and they all tend to show different things and some of them are better than others i I don't think personally that us gap method of reporting is a great one for insurance because profits tend to be pushed out way into the future and some of these products are very long in length in terms of you're insuring people for 20 30 years your uh, cost of sale i suppose is is the payout on on any claims which could happen sometime in the future, and particularly in some types of insurance. So you, revenues you're, you're booking now, you're having to make an estimate of your cost of sale. Is that right? Or is that... Absolutely. You, you, effectively, you, you, 
you know, at its simplest, you're trying to work out when someone's going to claim and how much premium are they going to pay you before they make the claim. And in fact, they won't be making the claim because they're most likely dead, right? For most of our product <laughs> lives. I know it sounds quite brutal like that, but it will be there to pay. Well, no, in, a, in an insurance where you're dealing with death as, as kind of a, a, a major sort of factor in, in uh, the way you do business, then I suppose uh, there must be a certain macabre or what's the word, dark humour <laughs> that goes with it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of. You really don't think about it after a while. But I, I, I mean... This year, you know, I, I have really thought about it because of COVID, but, but you know, we are providing a service in, in effect to the public, you know, because, you know, COVID, obviously there's a lot of people that are dying earlier than expected and, you know, there will be hardship to families and we provide a product that will help them to survive beyond the loss of their loved one. So I think in the midst of that, you asked about reinsurance. So... Yeah, I do work in a reinsurance company. So we don't actually insure members of the public. We insure either insurers or pension schemes. These are our main customers. But of course, that's in support ultimately of members of the public who've bought their own insurances and pension plans. So what does a reinsurer bring? Um, Well, generally, a reinsurer brings a lot of business and has a, a business model which is an attempt to diversify all the risks that it's taking on on its books. So maybe multiple product lines who are not going to pay claims all at the same time. And also, you know, having wide geographical exposure. So our business is, is split across the world. We have North American business, European business. We have some Asian business. We have some Australian business. So, you know, a catastrophe is, is not not often that that occurs worldwide clearly a pandemic is one but most cases a catastrophe doesn't occur everywhere so there is a diversification play around the risks that you're taking on and also you know typically a reinsurer will look to a very effective capital structuring in terms of where it puts its capital to support its business and there are certain locations that allow for better use of capital than others. So that's another feature of what you'll find from reinsurers. But because the reinsurers can see the whole market, and insurers necessarily haven't got the scale of data that reinsurers have, um, the reinsurers are obviously trying to make a play around their understanding and the expanse of data they've got to advantage themselves and therefore offer a good reinsurance product to an insurer who wants to offload risk and particularly peak risks that they might have so it's a spreading of risk vehicle essentially yeah okay that's that's a really useful kind of background to the industry i think uh, there are things there like i say that never occurred to me much uh, before we spoke about uh, some of the things you need to to deal with so just uh Think about um, some steps in your career now, and uh, you joined Pacific Life as their CFO, as you told us in 2006. Now, on the day you joined, something happened, didn't it? You were telling me earlier. Do you want to just uh, just recount that story again, which was uh, I found rather interesting? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I said earlier that I'd only ha- ever had effectively five interviews and four jobs, but. Virtually every single job I turned up at, something happened pretty quickly that I would, 
was probably not expecting. So in this particular case, I had some warning that Scottish Re was the company I joined before Pacific Life acquired Scottish Re two years later. So Scottish Re, I was joined in 2006. And I I heard from the deputy CEO at that point that there may be some news coming out of the US about the financial stability of the parent. Hadn't really thought a great deal about it. But on the day I joined, which was 1st of August 2006, the CEO's PA came down to reception to collect me on my first day. And between floor zero and four, she told me, firstly, she was very surprised I'd turned up to work. And secondly, that did I know that the share price of the US parent had halved the previous day? (laughs) So it was quite a shock to me by the time I get to floor four, where I was going to be working, that I just learned that there was some trouble in store for me. So essentially, yes, I joined a company with a load of problems. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, uh, yeah, not not exactly what you want on your first day in a new job. But uh, things moved on then with the, the parent company and you effectively trying to sell yourselves out from under that. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I kind of effectively the promise was around a new strategy, a new CEO, a new team to build a business which would look at new markets the business at the time I joined really wasn't much. And that's why there was a bit of risk around the move itself. So I guess I got payback when, when the share price had halved. So it was kind of all a bit messy, of messy systems, messy finance area. I really struggled to sort of try and understand what was there. I mean, I was lucky. There was a couple of resources that kind of hadn't been really recruited by me, but, but had been given to me. And I happened to hit it off with them uh, quite quickly. And they, I'm forever thankful to those two individuals, and I won't name them, but I think they know who they are. But they helped me to understand what I had inherited very quickly. And we needed to because the parent company had imploded around an irregularity of reporting, essentially, in the US. Nothing to do with the international business I'd joined. However, what was clear was for the parent to survive and effectively for us to survive, the parent had to shore up its balance sheet and get some capital. And therefore, within the first few months, we were in an exercise to recapitalize the parent and they were searching for some shareholders, new shareholders. So that was kind of a first phase effort to get some shoring up of the parent company balance sheet, which would enable us to survive. And, you know, we went into that not knowing much about the international business, the three of us, but we worked it out. And effectively, we had to answer a load of questions to these uh, acquirers, as it were, with these new shareholdings. And actually, they bought into Scottish Re as a whole. And I think that went through round about the end of that year. So kind of that was the 2007 year that we, we got that funding in. I think it was fairly early in that year which was obviously a relief, but it really wasn't clear then that this new group of shareholders would support the growth of our international business. And in the meantime, with such a a problem with the rating of the company, I think at this point it had deteriorated to a C rating around about the time that the new shareholders came in. You couldn't build a business because essentially reinsurance is reliant on a a good rating because you need to pay claims and without a good rating there's no guarantee you can pay claims so um 
there was a period where you know we were trying to hang on to what clients we had and trying to come up with ways of of managing the business so as not to damage it whilst we waited out to hear what was going to happen to these new shareholders how much they were going to support the business yeah so so i mean that's that's a, a situation obviously none of us really want to find ourselves in but and in finance i guess we don't tend to think of ourselves so much as responsible for sales but in that instance the very kind of stability of the company and, and most insurance companies have a a, a very strong uh, rating you know that becomes quite an important factor doesn't it that uh, you know to in order to retain clients and so on you need to instill confidence in those people paying you premiums that that you would be able to meet a, a claim uh, if it arises so so what what uh, what sort of things do you have to do there to to try and give clients those, that confidence, and uh, and I guess you were probably quite involved in in trying to in that side of things, of sort of playing a, a quasi sales role. Yeah, I don't think my boss would describe me as a salesman, but but, but yeah, I, I I guess my part to play was to support. How could you run a business where essentially to keep the clients, we actually had to say to them, well, you don't have to pay us premium at the moment because. Essentially, they didn't want to pay us premium if they didn't know they were going to get their claims paid, right? So part of the way of dealing with this for a period, and it couldn't have lasted for too long, but we went to the clients and we said, well, we'll give you a period where you don't have to pay us premiums, so you can withhold those premiums. And when we get a better balance sheet and a better rating, you pay us those premiums. But in the meantime, you're not going to be losing anything because if you're retaining the premium, you can pay your claims out of that premium. And essentially, that's the deal we did with a number of the key clients we had. I recollect that we lost one key contract, um, but we didn't lose a whole load until in the period that we were really suffering, uh, which was really effectively up to the point where Pacific Life bought us in 2008. So that was kind of a two-year period in in total that we were surviving. I guess the other thing is, apart from trying to talk to the clients, keep them happy, keeping them attached to us, you know, we had the other angle of, well, what about these hundred or so employees? And you know, faced with this, would they believe the executive that we're going to survive this and we will become the company that we thought we would become before all this kicked off? So there was all. A lot of stuff around, you know, retaining people, encouraging people, being open about the situation, being optimistic. So, yeah, it was a it was a really tough time because at the end of the day, you know, the business was built. We brought in a number of key executives to do a job that would be exciting. And effectively, we were holding the fort for virtually two years. But for part of that period, at least uh, we did ultimately find a solution and we could see it on the horizon so you and then uh the the cavalry came over the hill in the shape of pacific Is that right? yeah that's right okay. so, so so as you know the the real thing was that these shareholders that have put the money in had probably lost all their money pretty much overnight because the other thing that our parent had done which is was a, a real market issue was that they'd invested a lot in subprime assets in the u.s so, oh, and it was that time when that wasn't a good idea in particular, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly. So the, effectively, they had an investment strategy that supported a load of subprime assets 
And these these two new shareholders have put a load of money into the organization and they literally lost it within weeks. Now, quite what their due diligence procedures were around that, uh, effectively that acquisition of shareholding, I don't know, but it was clearly unfortunate to them because they, and in fact, they were quite angry at the end of the day because they put a, a huge amount of money in, but actually had lost a lot of value because of the subprime issue. So at that point, which was round about the end of 2007, we as an executive team in, in our international business sat down and said, well, look, you know, it looks like we're doomed. Um, what could we do now to survive? And and I remember this conversation and, and the executives that are still with us also recollect this quite fondly, that we we basically had a discussion that said, what if we could sell our international life division away from Scottish Re and find a new parent? And clearly a business unit can't ordinarily sell itself. So we had to go to the Scottish Re board and say, look, we've got an idea. You may be able to get some value for us, but a lot of that value might actually be in what the management team was at the point because we'd assembled this management team, a number of people from Swiss Re and elsewhere who could probably deliver on a on a, a business strategy. So we said, well, is it worth trying to sell us? You will get some value. That might help you because you, you, you're struggling with a C rating. And we might be able to extract ourselves and then it would be less complicated for you because the business itself wasn't that large, to be honest. So they agreed, the, the Scottish Reparent, and we wrote our kind of started kicking off writing our sales document. Uh, Merchant Bank was appointed by the parent. Um, but because the parent was so consumed by its troubles, it was effectively at the end of the day us to sell ourselves. So we met with the potential vendors and could tell our story and what our hopes were for this business. Um, and we had a couple of interested vendors and ultimately we Pacific Life found us, a US mutual insurer, and decided that they were interested in buying our division of Scottish Tree, and they did. And that was executed in 2008, uh, August, I believe. Ah, so, yeah, kind of like a management buyout in, in a way. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say that there was some interest in us taking up shares, but because Pacific Life's a mutual company and effectively it's owned by its policyholders, there wasn't that offering. So I can confirm that none of us have any shares in in this in this transaction or did have any shares in this transaction. But we all wanted our jobs. And, um, you know, the only way we were going to keep our jobs, quite frankly, at that point was for a very strong buyer to come in with an A-plus a rating, I think the capital was at that point in Pacific Life. So we literally overnight went, got the A-plus rating, which we could build a business off. Yeah, well, good result for you guys. So now you mentioned just there that, you know, about the, uh, the global financial crash or alluded to it at least. Now, I think the insurance market does tend to go through cycles. I was reading an article just recently suggesting it was a bit like the biblical seven years of feast and seven years of famine but i'm not sure if that rings true to you but um during your years at pacific life you've seen a fair share of events disasters you know 9-11 and the financial crash and now of course covid19 so what kind of lessons have you learned from that and will you ever 
kind of get you, do you just get used to those sorts of shifts and, and, uh, or is that a bit of a myth? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, generally the life business where, where I'm employed, I don't see as being particularly cyclical. The PNC business is very cyclical, pre, you know, hard and soft markets, but the, the life insurance market is less prone to hard or soft markets because essentially it's about, you know, how long people are going to live and, and that doesn't change, right? But having said that, you know, we obviously have market exposure for, to interest rates and we have a large part of our balance sheet sured up by assets. And, you know, in the case the crash that, that happened with respect to subprime, that really did dent our balance sheet. But, you know, most life insurers do have pretty safe balance sheets and they don't get too aggressive around their investment asset selection. Unfortunately, Scottish Re were quite aggressive and it caused a problem. So I, I actually think on the life insurance side that it's not too cyclical. However, you know, the big event that a life insurance entity might be affected for has happened this year in, in that we've got the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic. So if there is an event um, that could possibly impair a, a, an insurance company in the life sector, it's definitely a pandemic. And, yeah, everyone has suffered for it this year. However, as you probably recognise, that the generally the regulatory regimes and, and the way that life insurance businesses are governed is with the aim to survive a pandemic event because that's the one event that's likely to cause most stress. And I think if you read in the press, there's not many cases I've seen that expect to um, be suffering financially, ultimately, with, uh, particularly with having capital issues or not having enough capital in the life insurance industry. So most of the calibration of those companies' capital requirements and the assets it holds has withstood this pandemic to date. And hopefully they, we will survive, all companies. And I, certainly, if I'm talking from the balance sheet that I look after, it's well protected. And the event that's occurred is not one that would impair our balance sheet to such a an extent that we would close for business. Plus, we have a, a, a parent that is very well capitalised to support us. So for, for that reason, we don't expect any, any major change in our business. Well, that's good to hear. You, you mentioned earlier on that one of the kind of reporting cycle, one of the nature of the part of the reporting you have to do is, is to the regulator. And you as a regulated industry, along with other regulated industries, have extra hurdles that, that you need to meet and, and what have you. And uh, I'm just wondering what, what's the, the regulator that's relevant to you and, and what are the kind of features of that relationship and what, what do you have to do to, to meet their requirements? Yeah, I, across most of the 14 years that I've been at Pacific Life Re, the main regulator that I've personally been involved with, it, 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 and it has that various different forms, but it's currently the PRA. So the PRA regulation for insurance is in respect of the Solvency II regime that came in in 2006. So under that regime, we operate um, what's called a partial internal model, which is a capital model, which is calibrated essentially to withstand a one in 200 event. So an event 
that happens once in 200 years. And what it means is that the capital that you hold in your business should be able to survive that event. So the one thing that we would obviously be looking at is 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 the COVID event ultimately and where it occurs in, in the context of one in 200. But yeah, it's not going to reach anywhere near the one in 200 level that would cause us to be under capital strain. But that's essentially what the market is requiring and the PRA are there to effectively look at the management of the insurance companies and the reinsurance companies to ensure that they're governing their business in accordance with that and with good you know, prudent principles around management of, of risks and, and, and controls. Yeah, so as you say, although the event, the, the pandemic is is kind of a one in 200 year event, so we're told, or at least one in 100 years since the Spanish flu, then uh, maybe not the impact on, on you as insurers, perhaps you know, for, for mitigating reasons, such as just advances in medical technology and so on, which mean that uh, it hasn't quite been as bad as, as it might have been, dis- despite the fact it has been terrible for many people. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is that I did mention earlier about diversification. So we we have two core product lines. One pays out when people die, and the other one, which is, is the pension side of the house, is when people die, you don't pay out, if you see what I mean, because you no longer have to pay a pension. So that's a good offset in business terms because on one side of the house if someone dies early you pay that you get less premium but on the other side of the house under these contracts these longevity contracts we get paid premium until what we expected the death to be that date Um, and if someone dies early effectively we gain on that side of the transaction so we have a good diversification in in terms of risk Um, but nevertheless we are more weighted towards protection business and that means that overall we're making losses this year as a result of the deaths and the claims that we're ultimately going to pay out yeah and uh we can't kind of pass this without saying you know how how terrible it's been for many people but as i say it's it's the business you're in and i'm sure that those who have suffered in that way have have been grateful for for the insurances that, that, that they may well have had so We'll move on now because that's getting a bit gloomy. But um, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, it's a gloomy topic. That's the, the nature of, of the, the beast, isn't it? So just uh, just sort of uh, as we're coming towards the end, we we like to uh, to wrap up with a couple of questions about uh, what you see the landscape in in the sort of near term future and then then sort of mid term. So, what are the sort of things that you think CFOs should be focusing on, or that you're focusing on? in the next six months, 12 months, that sort of time horizon, and then the sort of midterm, more like a five-year time horizon? Yeah. Well, there are some, clearly right now, and for me, working in the life insurance industry, you know, COVID is obviously the key key matter to be thinking about and, and what, what that means for us. The, the thing about COVID is that we are a reinsurer, so at this point, whilst we have clearly a view about ultimately what financial impact that might have on us, we kind of have to wait until our clients, which is the insurance companies, receive claims. And because of the insurance industry, it takes time for claims to come through the system. We haven't actually got those claims yet. So it could take quite a long time before we see the claims and ultimately get a view on what the full financial impact of COVID will be on our balance sheet. 
although we have to make estimates for it um, because that's the basis of reporting to the regulator. So you know, what I see in the next six to 12 months is you know, following through how the claims get reported. Clearly, we've had to plan for bearing claims costs in 2021 this year, and that's part of our forecast. So that's an important part of the work that we're going to be doing in finance and actuarial this year is to ensure that we get the right reporting uh, for that event. And those events, you know, we haven't had to cope with before, um, but clearly they have a huge amount of investment of people's time to solve them uh, and get into the issues. So beyond that, you know, I guess we haven't touched on it yet, but there has been clearly a challenge for our business to survive and work in under the conditions of COVID. Like all industries, the work from home situation has been a challenge for us and continues to be a challenge for us. Clearly, we're all hoping to get back to the office, but yeah. The way we see it is the market has changed in terms of what pe- how people don't work. So I think the next six to 12 months, we will need to address you know, what the work space of the future is going to look like. Um, we've got a number of initiatives around that. You know, ultimately, you know, what we're seeing from our staff is that I think we, the, the majority of staff have turned towards wanting to go to the office a few days a week but not the five days a week that most of them were doing prior to the, to the COVID uh, issue. So I'm, I'm expecting us to spend a lot of time on the how, how do we deal with that, um, how we need to change our office space, how ultimately, what's the kind of feel of the company? Because you know, our company has a lot of relatively young employees and we're thinking about you know, how do you bring on new young employees that never had the chance to work in an office environment but you might be doing that more remotely than what you have ever done in the past so i think that brings great challenges from an operational perspective and i think retaining the culture of our company is important for us because the culture has supported a really successful period in growth um, and we don't want to go backwards um, so we, we're spending a lot of time as an executive thinking about that right now i think other things that are on the horizon. There's a, a push definitely from regulators around resilience of operations. That was kind of um, foreseen before COVID, but I guess it gets more impetus now. So there are some requirements coming around how we manage our business, how we support the clients and whether we're resilient in our operations and have operational certainty. So we are going to be looking to do more analysts, analysis, more scenarios around what would cause us not to be able to do what we we do as a business for our clients. And that's been driven by the regulator, is it, that, that resilience? It was already in play. There's, there's papers out there inviting the industry to talk about how we might improve resilience in the industry. Because there is a, there's a wider um, drive to try and improve resilience from an accounting point of view as well, isn't there? So you're getting it from two sides there, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's a feature. And I think what being a CFO has taught me is that ultimately I spend very little time looking at the finances. It's more about how do you make the back office work as a whole? And, you know, part of my career, I've also had some involvement in, in IT decision making. So I think the role of a CFO is particularly broad and, 
and with the regulator getting more tough around um, certainty and support to the market and ultimately members of the public who, who buy these products. Um, I think you combine those two things and I think there's going to be a lot of effort in there. I mean, another topical area is around information security. We are uh, moving quite rapidly, I would say, to improve our ability to understand our information security risks, um, improving our controls. And we're seeing quite a lot of activity from the regulator side around putting out requirements and a push really to improve governance in these areas. And it is appropriate because at the end of the day, insurers own or, or retain a lot of personal data. So information security is a big issue for them. And you know there are large fines if you don't do it well. So I, I see information security is important. Virtually every every project we net we do now, we, we will have a component which is looking at the information security side. Also, I guess you know in the next twelve months, capital efficiency, stroke recovery. Whilst our business is is, is solid on the capital front, I, I guess there's other businesses that will be will have been challenged and will possibly need to seek new sources of finance to sort of shore up their, their balance sheet. Not aware personally of companies that have, you know, suffered to the point where they've had to close for business, but, you know, some businesses may be facing decisions around whether they can write business. And so I, I see some capital market type activity. Certainly we as a business also are looking at capital efficiency and are there other routes to getting uh, capital on board? Um, and are there more favourable regulatory regimes also to drive um, efficiency of our capital and therefore uh, improve our returns and ultimately reduce our prices to customers. So that's the next 12 months. I see some of those things. I think in a, in a longer time frame, you know, maybe towards the five year, what are we talking about in, in our business and, and our parents' business? I think there's a lot of talk about digital finance, actuarial, automation, you know, we, we ourselves are looking at a finance transformation program. I think it lends itself to resilience, as I said earlier, but also operational efficiency. Typically, insurers have not been very operationally efficient. They have been slow to develop systems. You know, my experience of insurance is very prone to manual intervention, uh, less automation, uh, particularly between systems. Quite often systems don't talk that well to each other between different functions. So I think, you know, certainly in our business, and I expect elsewhere, a lot around how you can make those systems more efficient and work for you and possibly even use digital methods to replace resources ultimately and, and make more efficient process because that doesn't require manual intervention. So I see that. I, I also see, um, and, and this has been around for um, some time, the sort of big data discussion. So, you know, we ourselves have our own function around analytics of data. We do have a vehicle also in our MIS um, uh, called Underwrite Me, which essentially um, is looking at tooling for the insurance industry and the way that the insurance industry underwrites risk. So the combination of trying to find tools to make it easier to buy life assurance, plus tools that allow us to capture more data 
ultimately, which will improve our product, which will improve our ability to price competitively if we have more data. And that is definitely a move that we have been making over the past years, and I expect it to continue. And those people that don't move, don't have the best data, will find themselves less competitive. So I think it's really important for the industry on the data side. And for me, well, five-year horizon, and you know, hopefully it will be uh, time for me some point across those five years to retire. And hopefully I'll get to play a bit more golf and travel more and, uh, once these restrictions are over. So, you know, I, I'm going to see certainly some of these five years, but I might not see all of them. So then I'll be looking in from outside and seeing why my successes take particularly our business, but um, also the insurance industry. Well, I think we can all raise a glass to that sentiment of wanting the restrictions to be raised so that we can, or lifted, so that we can start traveling again before very long. So, uh, yeah, that seems like a a good point to end. So um, thank you very much, Duncan, for for that. Uh, There's been some fascinating insights into, well, just not not just the, the insurance industry, but also some of the kind of unexpected events that you you faced and you know how to, how to deal with those and, and you know some of the some real uh, real challenges there that uh, you came through with flying colors so you know it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you very much for that and um uh, i'm sure our listeners will really enjoy it thank you Stephen. i enjoyed the chat it's not often you get to reflect on the past but um it's actually quite um thought-provoking when it when the opportunity comes around so yeah thank you very much yeah thanks bye-bye goodbye we're keen to hear your thoughts on this episode so please do get in touch at info at numeritas.co.uk if you want to find out more about duncan or about pacific life re you'll find links in the show notes accompanying this episode which is on the numeritas website thanks for listening The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We're trusted modelling advisors to global leaders ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk.